Today is Palm Sunday, and as we are continuing in our series of encountering Jesus, leading us up to Easter, this morning we are looking at Luke's account of what is commonly known as the triumphal entry, Jesus as king, entering into his city, Jerusalem, encountering Jesus as king, the world, the world's true Lord, not exactly the king we expected, but encountering the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray, asking God to, by his spirit, to illumine our hearts and our minds to understand his word. Father, thank you that you've given us your word because you love us. You've given us your word to equip us, that your word is completely true, and it's here to shape us for our lives and our mission. Father, your word is living and active, and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And so we ask, Father, that you would transform us and change us by your word. Holy Spirit, be working in our midst, showing us what we need to learn, what we need to know, both as individuals and corporately as well. We pray, Holy Spirit, according to your promise, that you will guide us into all truth, that we'd be led into the truth that will set us free. In Jesus' name and for his sake, we pray. Amen. Now, if you're able, I'd ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word this morning, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. Friends, hear the Word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, those who went, sent, sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus is definitely the world's true Lord, and if you don't cry out praising him, the very stones are going to cry out. If we don't praise the Lord, the very creation of God is going to scream, Hallelujah, he is Lord of lords and King of kings. It's easy to understand the claim of Jesus' lordship and kingship, isn't it? It's another thing to understand its significance for our lives. Evie and I like to flip through. You know how your channels on the cable or DirecTV or whatever you have, they go through channel, you know, 9,600. I don't know. What am I? I'm watching now BBC, The World, or something. We have more channels than you know what to do. But every now and then, these, these, show, these channels like TBS and TNT will show a movie. Like, I think Shawshank Redemption comes on 40 times a year. Okay? 
You ever notice one of the other movies that comes on a lot? Fortunately, I've told you this story, and it's one of Evie's and I's favorite, Mr. Holland's Opus. Anybody ever watch Mr. Holland? Great movie, right? School teacher, so you would like Mr. Holland's Opus, okay? It's a story of a high school music teacher. Three guesses what his name is, by the way. Mr. Holland. And yes, he has an opus, but that's not the point of this illustration. At one point in the movie, he and his family are at a parade, kind of like a Fourth of July type of parade. And Mr. Holland is leading the marching band, and you've got all the typical parade stuff, okay? You got bands, and you got fire trucks, and you have honking cars, lots of lots of celebration and activity and noise. And all of a sudden, mom, let's call her Mrs. Holland, she looks down and she notices that their young son, Cole, is sleeping, utterly, utterly oblivious to everything going around, the excitement, doesn't even aware of it. They discover he's deaf, he cannot hear a thing. So even though he's at the parade, he's not able to experience the parade. Therefore, he's not able to understand the significance of what is going on around him. He's there, but he can't fully appreciate and experience the significance. May I suggest that that's what it was like for the Jewish leadership and for the crowd who had gathered on this first day of Passion Week for Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that they're there at the parade, but they're blind to the significance of why Jesus entered the city. They're there at the parade, their king is coming on a lowly colt, the foal of a donkey, coming in peace, but they don't understand the purpose of his kingly authority. They don't quite get it. And the question is, do we? Do we understand the purpose of Jesus' kingly authority? See, it's easy to claim, here comes your king. It's easy to wave the palm branches and say, Hosanna in the highest. But do we understand why he entered into Jerusalem? Do we understand for what purpose he went into the city? Do we understand the significance for our lives and our church's life? Or are we at the parade, but we're not really hearing the music? See, do you come to church? Or attend a Bible study. Go to community group. Maybe you go to family community group on Tuesday night. Keep coming. We applaud that. You do all the church's functions, but really don't understand the significance of Jesus being your king. The triumphal entry is all about the authority of Jesus. It is about the entrance and exercise of Jesus' preeminent kingly authority. True royalty has entered his city. Let's look at this text from two perspectives this morning. Look at one, how, easily it, how easy it is to miss Jesus' kingly authority. And two, what is the purpose of Jesus' kingly authority? So one, it's easier to miss than you think. And two, what is its true purpose? Okay? Commentators remind us that the context of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem marks the end of his kind of, we'll call it the silent period. Yes, they knew his healings and his works that were going on, but you ever notice that he would do things like cleanse a leper or heal a leper, and he'd say, shh, don't tell anybody, you know, what I've done for you. And I, I happen to think one of the great ironies of the New Testament scriptures, you probably know where I'm going with this. He tells the leper, for instance, don't tell anybody what I did for you, and what does he do? Hey, everybody! 
I was blind and now I see. I'm clean. Isn't this awesome? And then he tells us, upon whom the fullness of the ages have come. Oh, by the way, you know what I want you to do? I want you to go and tell everybody. And what do we do? Shh. I'm going to church this morning. Keep it a secret. I don't want anybody to know that I love Jesus. This is the beginning of Jesus' opening confrontation with his opponents. As a matter of fact, where the scene ends is he's going to go into the temple and he's going to cleanse the temple. He's going to have his authority challenged. This is the first day, day one of his Passion Week, and it begins with the crowds greeting his dramatic arrival on a coronation animal with cheers as they hail the coming of David's kingdom. Look with me at the text. It says, when he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need. Of it. So here's Jesus nearing the city of Jerusalem, and he's coming from the Mount of Olives, which is east of the city. And he's exercising his authority by first directing his disciples to go and get a colt. And I want you to notice something. Everything here is under his control. Every detail of this, he has this. He's showing his direct foreknowledge, his sovereignty over the entire situation. He tells his disciples exactly where to go, where they will find the animal, that they have to untie the animal, that the animal's never been sat on. Oh, by the way, you're going to be challenged about the animal. And when you're challenged about the animal, this is what you should say. This is what you should tell them. Tell them the Lord, he's coming. This is his kingship. Open for everyone to see. The Lord has need of it. What do the disciples do? They do as they're told, and the scene unfolds exactly according to every detail the way Jesus says it would. In other words, Jesus has this completely in his hands. Nothing catches Jesus off guard. Nothing catches Jesus by surprise. And so then the scene continues. It says those who were sent went away, and guess what? They found it just as he had told them. You'd think we'd stop being surprised by these things, right? And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So here's the text telling us that they spread their cloaks on the road, okay? The text tells us, and the other gospels indicate that it was a great crowd, that a great crowd had gathered and had come for the feast, which was actually for the feast of unleavened bread done at Passover time each year. Now, you need to understand, in this time of Jewish history, Passover, attendance at Passover, was required for every Jewish person. Since the reign of King Josiah in the Old Testament they had, Jewish pilgrims had to travel to the central sanctuary in Jerusalem and couldn't stay back in their local communities for the feast. 
Several years later, later on in the first century, the Jewish historian Josephus records that in AD 64-65, attendance at Passover was 2.7 million people. So if you subtract roughly, what, 35 years, something like that, we could guess that it's feasible, it's plausible, that maybe up to 2 million pilgrims were in attendance at the Passover. The other gospel accounts tell us that they took leafy branches. We learn from the other gospels, they indicate that, and thus it's our tradition, that they were palm branches. And they went out to meet him, rejoicing, shouting, Hosanna, which technically means, save me, rescue me. What is the significance of the palm branches? Luke, and we're looking at Luke's account, there's only so many ways I can do Palm Sunday, by the way, you do recognize this. I guess we go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, you know. Only so many, probably wouldn't be appropriate if I preached on Hosea, right, for Palm Sunday. So Luke's account does not mention the palm branches. But what are the significance of the palm branches? And here, obviously, I'm dependent on historians and scholars who know a whole lot more than I do about, the, about this. But they mention that during the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, a period known as the intertestamental period, a period of about 400 years, something took place in the second century BC that would define Jewish national identity for centuries to come. In the second century BC, the temple, which would have been the second temple, was completely desecrated by a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the leader of an empire known as the Seleucid Empire. Obviously, this riled up the Jewish people, and a Jewish man by the name of Mattathias was determined to rescue the temple and free the nation. He became the leader of kind of a guerrilla group that got together and fought against the Seleucids. Mattathias died, and the leadership passed to his son, a young man by the name of Judas, who became known as Judas Maccabeus. And it was under his leadership in 164 BC that the temple was rescued for the Jews to practice their faith. As time went on, this particular deliverance or rescue became commemorated and celebrated with a new annual feast that was known as the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights, something that is practiced today, and we know it, as Hanukkah. Later, Jewish, Judas, he had a brother whose name was Simon Maccabeus, and he drove the Seleucids completely out of Jerusalem altogether. So now they not only had their temple back, but they had their city back. And that event was celebrated with a parade. Much like you'd have a victory parade after a team wins the Super Bowl, or a team, let's just say, for example, the New York Yankees wins the World Series, and you end up having a victory parade, okay? These things aren't brand new, all right? And in that parade, what the Jews do was they celebrate their victory with music and with the waving of palm branches. And so the palm branches had a very concrete and specific meaning. It became a symbol of military victory, of national triumph. So one person, he gives the example, he says, for example, if our nation was conquered by a foreign power, because remember, 100 years later, the Jewish people are conquered by the Romans. If our nation's conquered by a foreign power and people are watching every move you make, they're kind of looking at everything you do, you're no longer free, 
and say we as Americans are trying to celebrate the 4th of July, what would we celebrate maybe? With little mini Liberty Bells that we might ring because it'd be a symbol to us of what? Our story of national freedom. And so now if you recognize that where we are, that when this happened with the waving of palm branches and the kind of the rushing out, the deliverance from the Seleucids, this would have been one of the few times in Jewish history that the Jewish nature, nation was free from foreign rule. By the time you get to Jesus' time, they're back under Roman rule. They're no longer free politically. So here comes Jesus, the crowd thinking, here comes our king, our Messiah. The palm branch has a very specific meaning to them. This is not general or generic freedom. This means national freedom. This is like we remember 200 years ago. We remember back then, and here comes our king and our Messiah, and Jesus is entering the city, and he doesn't deny this, does he? Here they are waving the palm branches, and Jesus doesn't say, oh, you guys have misunderstood this. You missed the point. Put them away. They meet him with the waving of palm branches signifying their national freedom. The text tells us they're shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And remember I said Hosanna is the Hebrew word literally meaning save now. Rescue us. It comes from what is known as the Hallel, which are the grouping of Psalms known as the Hallel Psalms from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 that would be sung every morning at the Feast of Tabernacles. And every Jewish pilgrim would be familiar with this history. Remember, this is their history. This is their story. And so obviously they'd be filled with incredible hope and anticipation. I want you to enter into what they'd be experiencing and feeling as Jesus comes they're going, here comes our Savior. They haven't yet clicked or connect on Savior from sin. Here comes our Savior who will save us from the Romans. They're looking to Jesus as their king. And what does he do? Nothing. They're shouting, save us. And they have a very specific meaning. Save us from the Romans. Jesus has a totally different meaning. So what was the meaning of his coming? What was the purpose of his kingly authority? And before I move further, let me ask you, how many times do we misunderstand the purpose of God's kingly authority? How many times do we misunderstand the truest meaning of God's goodness? How many times do we walk around and we kind of go, oh, yes, I got the job. God is good. I got the good doctor's appointment. God is good. I got the parking space. God is good. Is he good for all those times? Yes, I'm not denying the goodness of God, but what happens if you're the person who didn't get the job at the job interview? What happens if you're the person who didn't get the good report from the doctor? What happens if you're the person who, as you're pulling in the parking space, he's going, ah, you pulled in my parking space. Is God no longer good? If that's how you def define the purpose of the goodness of God and the kingly authority of God, what happens when things don't go your way? What happens if you're a faithful Jewish person looking for national freedom and the person you're looking to as king does what? Does nothing. 
leaves you in bondage to Rome. What happens when you're the person who goes in and you find out your child still has cancer? Or you don't get the job, or the relationship doesn't go as you want. How do we define the kingly authority of Jesus? What was its movement? What was its purpose? What was its definition? One writer says, ironically, Jesus here enters the city from the Mount of Olives with the Hillel ringing in his ears. He will later depart for the Mount of Olives to pray in a garden in the Mount of Olives in torment after he and his disciples have sung a hymn, possibly a Hillel psalm, at the close of his Last Supper. What is the purpose and direction of Jesus' kingly authority? He didn't come to lead a military takeover. He didn't come to lead a military coup. Yes, he came to heal us. By his stripes, we will be healed at the consummation, the new heavens and new earth. Yes, there will be a time when there will be complete and utter joy. But it's not yet. Why do we pray Lord's Day after Lord's Day? Because I want God to inculcate in our ears, Thy kingdom come! Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, he came to defeat our enemies. And he came to defeat Israel's enemies. But their enemies, and maybe ours, are quite different from who and what we thought they were. Now see, we have to recognize that here at this text, we're not looking at the whole story. This is the story of Jesus entering in to the city. But why is he entering Jerusalem? What do we learn from the rest of the story? As one writer put it, Roman guards will lead Jesus out of the city as a defeated captive. Consequently, Jesus does not share the disciples' earthly fantasies of glory. He appears in the city as he had forewarned times before to suffer and to die, not to set up a rival kingdom to Caesar. He comes as a king who will be crowned with thorns and throned on a cross and hailed as the chief of fools. His entrance points to a different kind of triumph than the one envisioned by the crowd, one that will be more powerful than any Davidic monarchy and more far-reaching than the narrow borders of Israel or even the entirety of the Roman Empire. See, look at what we learn here. Jesus does not ride in on a great Clydesdale horse or a great steed, but on a donkey that, verses 29, 30 and 30 tell us, had never been ridden before. And R.C. Sproul tells us that in the Holy Land, donkeys are not like they are here in the U.S. They're much smaller, that grown men have to bend their knees as they ride so their feet don't drag on the ground, so that instead of riding in in royal style, Jesus self-consciously and purposely and intentionally identifies with the prophecy that Al read earlier from Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He enters Jerusalem on a lowly donkey. Yes, he enters in what would be symbolic of a person coming in peace, but he's bringing peace in a way completely upside down from what would be expected. 
Because how is he coming? He is coming in lowliness and he's coming in meekness. He's not coming exercising his power. He's coming surrendering to the powers and to the worst that the powers can give him and throw at him. Not the picture that the people had in mind, not what we'd call their normal expectations. This king comes in weakness and lowliness and meekness and humility. He's the upside down king. Jesus failed to give the people what they wanted, but instead he goes so much deeper giving them and giving us what we truly need. See, I want you to think about something. We come to Jesus, and we should. We come to Jesus and we ask him for all sorts of things. We ask for healing, and we ask for power, and we ask for peace. We ask for joy. We ask for such and such with this relationship, or we ask for things, and that's fine. But Jesus says, go much deeper. What is your greatest need? And if it's your greatest need, and if it's truly your greatest need, which means a greater need than all those other things, than for healing and then for power and for this circumstance, if it's your greatest need and God provides it through Jesus, then maybe it's the greatest gift and it's the greatest demonstration of love and goodness, the greatest definition of love poured out. Maybe Jesus is saying, I've come to give you what you most desperately need, forgiveness and salvation. I've come to give you true rescue. Yes, sing Hosanna, and I'm about to save you, but I'm about to save you from what can really get you, which is not this circumstance, but it's sin and hell and death. And I'm about to rescue you from all of that. See, the only way for our hearts to really be healed is to be forgiven and loved. To have the whole in our hearts completely healed. See, Jesus came to forgive us and to love us perfectly. So that the only solution is Christ and the gospel. We should be thankful that God does not grant us our wish to be our own Savior. God, make my life work so I can direct my life. Thank God he doesn't answer that prayer. But instead he gives us our truest, deepest need, which is Christ and the forgiveness of sin and salvation from sin. The true revelation and demonstration of the goodness of God. As I quote all the time, and Paul says in Romans chapter 5, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. And think about these words. It's his demonstration. He's saying, let me show you what true love and goodness is. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to provide our deepest need, forgiveness and salvation and love. Scotty Smith, who's a PCA pastor, puts it this way, and I'll end with this, and then we're going to come in fellowship with this love of Christ at the table where he feeds us with his body and blood. Scotty Smith writes, he says, the first word of Holy Week was Hosanna. The next word, crucify him. But the last word, he is risen. Jesus, what no other king could vanquish, sin and evil, Riding the foal of a donkey. No other king could break the backbone except by the brokenness of crucifixion. Why did Jesus come into Jerusalem? What was the purpose of his kingly authority? To bring us home.
to bring us to himself as forgiven and redeemed sinners. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you and thank you so much for why Jesus came into Jerusalem, why he brought it, why he entered into that city. And Lord, we do thank you that we have your word that bears witness to us of this. We pray now for our coming to the Lord's table where we have the opportunity to fellowship with you, to participate with you, to be united to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, teach us to surrender to your love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.